All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. Coffee. So today we have with us two very exciting guests to talk to us about perinatal mental health. Um, we have with us first Dr. Tiffany Morsimus. She is the medical director for Lifeline for Moms program. She's also the obstetric engagement liaison um, of MCPAP for Moms, and she's also the chair of the Department of OBGYN at UMass Memorial Health. Um, she's also a professor of OBGYN pediatrics and psychiatry, um, PQHS, and also the co-chair of the ACOG Maternal Mental Health Expert Workgroup. Our second guest that we have with us is um, Dr. Nancy Byatt. Uh, she is the executive director for the Lifeline for Family Center and Lifeline for Moms program, and also the medical director for MCPAP for Moms, and is also a tenured professor of psychiatry, OBGYN, and PQHS at UMass Memorial. So welcome, both of you, and we're very excited to have you on our podcast. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, we're so thrilled to have you and to talk again about such an important topic in perinatal mental health. And I know you both are real experts in this field and have pioneered some unique programs. Um, and it may be sort of a an obvious question to start with, I guess, but I also wanted to just hear it from you all. Um, why is addressing mental health in the perinatal period important? Oh, thank you for asking the question. I think it's important to set the context um, while we get into the details probably later. So, you know, the fact of the matter is it's one of the most common complications of pregnancy, if not the most common complication of pregnancy. In fact, one in five perinatal individuals will experience a mental health condition in pregnancy in the postpartum period. And that one in five is an average, right? So we know that there are higher rates in adolescents, women veterans, those that are marginalized by you know, racism and socioeconomic disadvantage. And many of us have probably recognized and realized that the uh, COVID pandemic has exacerbated, especially anxiety symptoms uh, for perinatal individuals. And so one in two uh, can experience this. So it's really, really common. It's something that as OBGYNs we see all the time. And then it's not just common, it's bad, right? There's significant negative consequences across the life's course for that perinatal individual, for the child, for the partner, and for the family. So, you know, it's associated with things like less engagement in medical care. And I should say specifically untreated perinatal mental health is associated with these things. So things like less engagement with medical care, smoking and substance use disorder from an obstetrics perspective, you know, preterm birth, low birth weight babies, NICU admissions in the postpartum period, um, the lactation challenges, issues with bonding with the baby. And a mother with untreated perinatal mental health condition is actually an adverse childhood experience for that offspring, right? And that offspring can then have a number of issues related to developmental delays and then mental health issues later in life. So really common, significant negative consequences that really could be prevented. When we talk about negative consequences, sort of the extreme negative consequences, maternal mortality. And this is a significant contributor to maternal mortality and the work of the CDC and the maternal mortality review committees would actually say this really should be a never event, right? When you look at suicide and overdose as mental health conditions, as related to mental health conditions, we should be, should be able to prevent 100% of those. So perinatal individuals dying as it relates to mental health conditions really should not happen. And Dr. Byatt, I understand too, kind of from the perspective of perinatal mental health conditions, I know Dr. Morris-Simus mentions that this should be a never event, um, but that's not the case is my understanding. That's right. A big part of the reason for that is that many of these mental health conditions are underdiagnosed 
they're underdetected, and they're undertreated. So typically, even if a woman screens positive for depression, less than a quarter of those women, unless there's a system in place to help them get care, are going to get even to an initial mental health appointment. And that's after a positive screen. And we actually, Tiff and I did a systematic review together years ago, and that's what we found in our data. And when we think about obstetric care, and you know, Tiffany very nicely outlined all the reasons why mental health is important, why it's important to be addressing this in obstetric settings is because without it will never there will never be enough psychiatrists to see the pregnant and postpartum individuals that need one and in general depression and and anxiety and other a lot of other mental health conditions are treated in primary care settings so generally 80 percent of depression and anxiety is managed in primary care settings so when we think about the obstetric setting by integrating mental health care especially for anxiety and depression into the obstetric care setting that can be a way to help screen women or recognize it and provide the care that without such a system in place and without integrating it likely won't happen. And that's what the data tells us. Yeah. And so, you know, we as obstetric care clinicians are primary care physicians, right, to pregnant and postpartum individuals. Um, so addressing mental health is something not only we should do, we can do. It's absolutely within our scope of practice, given how common a complication it is a pregnancy. So let's break this down a little bit further. Um, I think, you know, when we think about perinatal mental health, we particularly think about postpartum depression because I think that's something that is, um, you know, talked a lot more about, I think, in our obstetrics world. But when we're talking about perinatal mental health, what exactly are we talking about? Is it just depression? And then what really should we be screening for and when and why do we do this? Yeah, great question. Um, so a couple of things. One, we historically refer to postpartum depression a, because if we screened for it at all, we tended to do it in the postpartum period. Uh, and B, if we screened for anything, it, it was depression. But when you really think, well, you know, when you, you ask the question sort of like, what is perinatal mental health? Perinatal mental health really speaks to any mental health condition that is occurring in pregnancy or the postpartum period. Now, those can be conditions that, you know, we, that the you know, patient knew about, they're coming into pregnancy with it uh, because those conditions can be exacerbated or altered uh, in pregnancy and postpartum or new onset uh, within pregnancy in the postpartum period. And most often as obstetric care clinicians, we're talking about depression and bipolar disorder as mood disorders. And we're talking about anxiety or anxiety related conditions, uh, including things like generalized anxiety disorder or PTSD and OCD. We mostly talk about those because they really are within the purview of our care versus something like schizophrenia, for example, which we would wholly expect that there is a psychiatrist involved in that care. So if you think about um, you know, ACOG guidelines, for example, or what was the Council on Patient Safety and Women's Healthcare now AIM and their patient safety bundles, the recommendations for screening are really predominantly around depression and anxiety. And many people don't realize this, but also bipolar disorder. You know, you can screen for easily using um, validated self-administered tools like um, PHQ-9 or Patient Health Questionnaire 9, 9 standing for nine questions, or the EPDS, um, which is the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Survey, which has 10 questions. Both the PHQ-9 and the EPDS, the last question is a self-harm question. So when you want to score them, you want to look at that one, not just the total score, but the answer to that question specifically. And then with regards to anxiety, uh, the GAD-7, or general anxiety disorder screener, seven questions, uh, also is a self-administered validated survey in perinatal populations, easy to administer, easy to score. And then some would also speak to there are four questions within the EPDS that are used as an anxiety subscale. And so, 
not, so those are the tools that I would recommend using around depression and anxiety. With bipolar disorder, there are also similarly easy to use self-administered validated screeners in this population. And then if you don't use it as part of your routine screening with depression, anxiety, you always want to screen for depression, or, excuse me, for bipolar disorder before potentially prescribing pharmacotherapy for depression, anxiety. So you don't exacerbate bipolar disorder. And so the when do you screen becomes important. There's current recommendations from ACOG around um, at least once in the perinatal period. And if you do it in pregnancy, do again postpartum. And then the patient safety bundles speak to doing it early in pregnancy, later in pregnancy, and in the postpartum period. There's a large study done by Kathy Wisner, Dr. Kathy Wisner and her team looking at 10,000 women. And what we historically thought of as postpartum depression, if you actually um, evaluate time of onset, it's almost a third, a third, a third, about a third will come into pregnancy with it, a, a third will develop it over the course of pregnancy and a third in the postpartum period. And so really we recommend that initial OB visit somewhere around, you know, the 28 week, 24 to 28 week Lupola visit and then postpartum. No, thanks for that, Dr. Morris. I miss and I've got to say, no, our practice has certainly changed where I am, where we are doing that now. Again, that sort of initial prenatal visit, that third trimester, like glucola visit, and then the postpartum visit for using the EPDS formally. But I do have to say, you know, it's news to me um, about screening for bipolar disorder. And I have to say that's something that I don't see routinely in my practice at all. Um, so should OBGYNs be screening for bipolar disorder? And if so, how do we do that? So it's a great question. And the answer is yes. <laughs> and the critical thing with screening is that screening, when we think about the mental health care pathway, there's detection, which is screening, right? Assessment. And then there's uh, treatment. And then there's follow-up and monitoring. Um, when we think about that assessment step, part of the, what's important to assess for is bipolar disorder. And you said, well, I'm surprised to hear that. And that's not to say that, you know, our goal and the goal should be, or the standard for OBs to be the primary manager of bipolar disorder. However, the reason it's important is that same study that Tiffany was just describing by Kathy Wisner. Of the patients who screened positive for depression, which were about 15%, which is what we would expect, one in five of those individuals based on a diagnostic interview had bipolar disorder. So what that means is that of the people who screened positive for depression, up to one in five of them may have undiagnosed bipolar disorder. So when we think about the mental health care pathway, part of that's assessing for illness severity, assessing for comorbidity, or assessing, is it really just depression and anxiety? People with bipolar disorder can spend a lot of time in depressive episodes. So someone could present, they could screen positive for depression, and they may have undiagnosed bipolar disorder. So it's important that as part of that second step in the assessment, you screen for bipolar disorder when you're thinking about the differential diagnosis, and bipolar disorder is on there. And I also want to clarify as I say that. These screens are not assessment tools, they're screening tools. But when we're thinking about assessment of depression, we want to kind of rule out bipolar disorder. And a screening tool, particularly in the OB setting, is a really nice way to do that. We provide consultation for many OB providers across Massachusetts. And a lot of times people will call and they'll say, oh, you know, they had a history of bipolar disorder. I started them on an antidepressant. And you might be wondering, well, why should we not do that? The reason is because the treatment is different. We treat based on diagnosis. If someone has depression or anxiety, the treatment is typically, you know, it's therapy and an antidepressant. It's more complicated than that, but I'll, I'll leave it there for now. Um, if someone has bipolar disorder, 
you don't want to treat them with an antidepressant unopposed. That is not evidence-based treatment, and it could actually worsen it. You could precipitate mania, and it's also they're not going to likely they're unlikely to get better because that's not the evidence-based treatment. And I'll also just add the other reason why it's so important to address bipolar disorder is because you know a lot of times you know we hear about postpartum psychosis. And postpartum psychosis is not particularly common, thankfully. It's generally one to two in a thousand perineal individuals that are going to experience postpartum psychosis. However, of the women who develop postpartum psychosis, studies pretty consistently show that about approximately 70% of those will have an underlying diagnosis of bipolar disorder. If someone does experience postpartum psychosis, there's a risk of infanticide. And you might be wondering, okay, well, now this is complicated. Now I got to worry about bipolar disorder. How do I figure that out? We don't expect obese to be diagnosing bipolar disorder. We know that's totally unrealistic. It's actually really hard for psychiatrists to diagnose bipolar disorder. It's, it's really very complicated. What Fortunately, there's a couple of screening tools that can be really useful to help sort out whether this may be there. So the mood disorder questionnaire is a validated tool that could be added um, during the, you know, it can either be implemented in the workflow, for example, if someone's screened at the initial prenatal care visit or the IOB for depression, you could also do the MDQ, the mood disorder questionnaire. So then someone can see, okay, they have positive for depression, positive for bipolar disorder. I'm not going to start an SSRI. I'm going to, I'm going to further assess. The other way to do it is something called, it's the CD. There's a three question STEM as part of the CD structured clinical interview. This, the CD bipolar three question STEM, you basically, the clinician asks two questions. If the patient screen say no to both, they screen negative for bipolar. If they say yes to either, they ask a third question. If they say no to that, they screen positive, negative. If they say yes to that, they've screened positive. And again, these are not diagnostic, but this is enough to tell, you know, any OB who's screening for bipolar disorder, okay, they screen positive. I'm not going to start an SSRI or an antidepressant. I'm going to have them further assessed or call for psychiatric consultation. So fortunately, we have tools that we can use to provide that screening. And the good news is, you know, um, Nancy referred to our perinatal psychiatry access program in Massachusetts. The good news is it's almost half of states have those and there is a national hotline. And so that every, um, every OB clinician across the country has access to this sort of real time, at least sort of Monday through Friday, nine to five ish uh, support where they can talk to a perinatal psychiatrist and say, you know, I have the patient, this patient in my office, I'm not certain what to do. Awesome. Thank you for sharing um, that with us. I think, you know, the the one thing that I'm, I'm sure most OBGYNs are less comfortable with, if, not, you know, they become comfortable with the screening tools, is just what happens if these patients screen positive? Like, who do we refer to? Do we start them on treatment? Where do we go if they are positive for the PHQ-9, for um, any of these bipolar uh, mood uh, disorder questionnaires, things like that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and as I talked about and started to talk about earlier, Screening is the first step in the care pathway, and it needs to be followed by assessment, treatment, follow-up, and monitoring. And the goal is full remission of symptoms. So if we think about diabetes as a parallel, you know, someone's created positive diabetes and you follow up, you make sure their blood sugar is under control, and then you monitor them and you refer them for specialty care if, if for whatever reason, it's hard to manage. And the goal is that we do the same for depression and anxiety and paranormal mood anxiety disorders in general. So that once someone is screened, it's assessed, it is then um, treated and it's followed up until the patient gets better, um, which we you know often refer to as full remission of symptoms. All right. So 
let's go ahead and presume that we've gone through these screening questions and we are going to go through with that treatment that we have confidently said we're not dealing with bipolar disorder here so we're not referring out for that that this is something that is more akin to straightforward depression or anxiety as an ob who may or may not have access to perinatal mental health immediately around me what can i do to start treating um anxiety or depression so that's a great question and you know, in, in an ideal world, it would be great if whenever someone screens positive for any of these conditions, if we could simply, you know, refer them to a psychiatrist and they could see a psychiatrist. And even if we could refer them to therapy quickly and they would get in really quickly. The reality is that that's not the case. And so what we recommend and what you know, there's pretty clear evidence for is taking a stepped care approach to care for perinatal mental health conditions. So for example, if someone is experiencing, you know, mild depression, say their EPDS, for example, is, you know, around a 10, then it can be that they can be managed in the OB setting with some counseling or with some psychotherapy. Psychotherapy is a first line treatment for depression and anxiety. It really should always be offered. It's a key pillar of treatment. And so generally, if someone's experiencing mild depression, medications may not be indicated. And also patients offered aren't often um, seeing the value of that. And for good reason, because it may not be indicated at that point. And also providing what we often refer to as, you know, adjunctive interventions. These are interventions that aren't necessarily, you know, they don't replace treatment, the mainstay of treatment being psychotherapy and medication treatment. So adjunctive interventions include things like, um, you know, self-care, utilizing natural supports, meditation, all things like that, exercise, diet, things that can be helpful, peer support, things that don't replace treatment that can be very helpful. If someone has more mild to moderate illness, so for example, if their EPDS is above a 13, which is often more consistent with major depression versus minor depression, and they're uh, experiencing some depression symptoms, maybe they have a history of depression in the past, at that point, we'd want to think about medication treatment. If it's uncomplicated illness, we still would think about treating that in the OB setting because it'd be great if they could be referred to a psychiatrist, but that's not realistic. So the thinking is if someone has mild illness or mild to moderate illness, it's managed in the OB setting with um, pharmacotherapy, adjunctive interventions, and referral for psychotherapy. If someone has depression or anxiety, the first line treatment that we're thinking about is an antidepressant. Um, the ones that are used, you know, usually first-line treatment with antidepressants includes selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. I've been already using the acronym SSRIs. Sertraline is often one that we use very commonly in the setting. It's well-tolerated, and there's lots of studies with this in pregnancy. But the short story is that most antidepressants can be used in pregnancy or postpartum. I know certainly when I'm seeing someone, I'm usually far more concerned about the risks of untreated illness than I am about the effects of the medication itself, either during pregnancy or lactation. If someone has more severe illness, so for example, their EPDS is an 18 or above, then we still would want to use all of these treatment approaches, adjunct interventions, psychotherapy, and pharmacotherapy. At that point also is when we start thinking about, okay, we might need to call for psychiatric consultation. We can call, you know, as, as Tiffany mentioned earlier, there's parallel psychiatry access programs and psychiatrists available to provide guidance in that. So when we often think about referral to psychiatry, for example, would be if their MDQ is positive. And then, you know, I've kind of been alluding to, as we've been talking about treatment, you know, what are the risks and benefits of using medications in pregnancy? People are often asked this. The short story with this is that the best thing that an expecting or new parent can do is to get the support and treatment that they deserve. And often that includes medication treatment. 
In my experience, often, you know, patients that come, they're not really concerned about taking Zofran, for example, in pregnancy, but they're really thinking twice about that antidepressant. And, you know, depression is a medical illness. It needs to be treated. And overall, we have studies on millions of women taking antidepressants in pregnancies. And generally speaking, when a woman has illness, I know myself, I'm often far more concerned about the risk of the illness than I am about the risk of the medication in pregnancy. And in general, when we think about antidepressant use in pregnancy, it overall has not been linked with um, birth complications or birth defects. There is an associates with transient neonatal symptoms, which could include you know, tachypnea, going to the special care nursery for a few days, irritability, those typically resolve with time. And there's also a concern about neurobehavioral effects, for example, autism, that data has been inconsistent, which is overall always reassuring because if it was a true teratogen, the data would typically be consistent. And, you know, there's also evidence that the illness itself does that. And the other thing I want to point out when we think about using antidepressants in pregnancy and postpartum is that under treatment is an exposure in itself. No treatment or undertreatment of antidepressants has been linked with birth complications, increased risk of postpartum depression, and makes it actually all the stuff. I won't repeat what Tiffany described earlier. Trouble with bonding, neurobehavioral effects later on. Tiffany earlier had described the risk of no treatment. So we're really weighing the risks of treatment versus no treatment. Thank you. That's really helpful in terms of guiding us on how to treat our patients. And certainly, you know, as MFM fellows, we've had quite a few um, consultations about, well, my patient is on this medicine. Is it okay for her to continue? Um, I think I want to switch gears here a little bit, and I, I want to talk about some other things that give OBGYNs anxiety, which is, you know, we give somebody their um, either their Edinburgh postpartum depression screen or, you know, the PHQ-9 or even PHQ-2, and the patient indicates that they have thoughts about self-harm. What would you say to the OBGYN about how they should respond to those? Another great question. I, I, I totally um, get that this can make people really, you know, you hear about thoughts of self-harm, you know, we worry about it, right? I mean, I do want to acknowledge that, you know, mental health and substance use are early leading cause of death in America, right? For maternal death. And so we want to take it really seriously. However, at the same time, I also want to provide, from, provide some reassurance that many times when a patient screens positive for the self-harm question, the EPDS, they don't always need to go to the emergency room. And often, it's, yeah, it's an indicator that they have more severe illness, but it doesn't necessarily mean to go to ER and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're at imminent risk of suicide or self-harm or that they necessarily need to be further evaluated in an acute way or in an, on an emergency basis. You know, unwanted, intrusive thoughts are really, uh, including harms of harming self and the baby are really common during this time period. And when you look at the EPDS and the questions, the first question that asks about self-harm, if they answer one, it goes zero, one, two, three is the scoring. One is hardly ever. If someone's hardly ever thinking about suicide, chances are they're not at high risk of doing that. They certainly should be assessed, but you know, they're at less risk. And I've evaluated many, many people over the years for our studies and clinically, and many people answer positive and the vast majority don't necessarily need to go to the ER. So that's the reassuring piece is that because someone's experiencing these thoughts, it doesn't necessarily mean to go, they need to be further evaluated or they're at imminent risk. And you might be wondering, okay, well, how do I figure that out? <laughs> you know, I think it's, it, you know, people often think, okay, they got to go, you know, they have SI, suicidal ideation, we need to get them further evaluated. Like, and you might be thinking, well, in an obstetric practice, how do I determine that? Is there ideation, plan, and intent? Those are the three things. So ideation, are they thinking about it? Ideation by itself is not necessarily an emergency. Is there a plan? That gets a little more high risk. If someone's planning it out, that's more concerning. And do the, is that plan specific? And what's the lethality of that plan? And then the next piece is their intention. So they may say, oh, I've thought about overdosing, but I have no intention to do it. 
I've never done it. I wouldn't do it because of X, Y reasons versus somebody that says, yeah, I've thought about overdosing. I'm beginning to, I've begun to save my pills. I wrote a note and I'm going to go in the woods and do this tomorrow. That's obviously really concerning. So you're thinking about ideation, plan, and intent. And those are three things you're assessing. And the intent is the piece that really makes it high risk and that we worry about the most. And I, I want to say one more thought about thoughts of harm to the baby. So this is also quite common that people have thoughts of harming the baby. Also, this can get really alarming. If you're working with someone, for example, that presents and they are reporting depression and anxiety and they come in and they tell you, I've had thoughts of pouring my baby down the stairs. I've been pacing around the house, avoiding the stairs. because I'm so worried I'm going to do it. That sounds scary, right? They're having thoughts of throwing their baby down the stairs. But if we think about it in the context, these thoughts are intrusive. It's scaring the person. They're avoiding the stairs. They're unlikely to act on them. People, when thoughts are intrusive and scary, which we call ego dystonic, they're unlikely to act on them. That is very different than someone that said, I've had thoughts of throwing my baby down the stairs. I'm concerned that my baby, um, they maybe have a delusion or hallucination that the baby is been possessed or the baby's the devil. And they think if I do that, the world will be a better place because I'll save the world for my baby who's evil. I mean, that's a dramatic example, but that's a psychotic delusion that is egocentric because they think if I do this, the world might be a better place. We call those altruistic delusions. That's concerning, but those are really different. So it's the same thing, you know, just because someone reports thoughts of harming self or others, it doesn't necessarily mean they need to evaluate it. It means, they may, it means they may need to be further assessed, but looking at whether these thoughts are intrusive and making them anxious, those individuals are at low risk of acting on it versus somebody that has thoughts that are reassuring them and that are based on delusions and based on psychosis. That is really a psychiatric emergency. That's consistent with postpartum psychosis. And those people absolutely need to be evaluated very quickly. And that could be imminent. No, that's a really helpful way to break down the assessment of a really anxiety provoking type of scenario. Um, and also to just talk, I guess, with, you know, some sort of fluidity about a situation that's really uncommon for us as obstetricians. Um, I want to pivot a little bit now because many of our listeners are either residents or fellows who are kind of in training and maybe thinking about things like quality improvement efforts in this arena or are junior physicians in practice who may be starting their own private practice or joining a group practice or joining a university setting where the workflow, as you all have explained, surrounding mental health may still need to be optimized in the perinatal area. So can we talk a little bit generally about how an OB practice can start to integrate some of these things that you've talked about today into their workflow? Sure. Another good question. So as we talked about earlier, when we think about this, you might be wondering, well, what are we talking about integrating? It's that mental health care pathway, the screening, assessment, treatment, and follow-up, right? So there's a maternal mental health patient safety bundle, and that presents the how, um, you know, of what you're, no, sorry, it presents the what you're supposed to do. You know, it's a really high level what you're supposed to do when it comes to perinatal mental health care. What is important is the how you're supposed to do that. So Tiffany and I together have done a lot of research focusing on how do you actually implement this in the practice? And what we've done is we developed a guide that we've studied through several uh, randomized controlled trials. And then we have iteratively developed in feed with feedback from OB providers and patient lived experience. And the guide we developed, it essentially provides strategies for how do you operationalize getting these steps into the care pathway. 
And it provides a structure for the practice to change their workflow to integrate all of the things we've been discussing. Just to give a brief example, say, for example, they're thinking about, okay, well, what happens if they score positive on the suicide question? Then we, the guide provides a structure for them to think about that. And how do they put that in their workflow? And who do they refer to? And all these many things we've been talking about today. And you know, what we recommend is really doing this as a QI initiative. That's really great. You know, we talked about these resources before, but I think for all of our listeners and for ourselves, what are some of these resources and how do we go about finding them so that we can start to change some of our practice um, in our OBGYN offices? Great. Thank you. Thank you for asking that question. I think a couple of things. ACOG is always a great reference for resources. So whether it's practice bulletins, clinical opinions, or clinical practice guidelines, which is, of course, now where they're moving. Uh, there are uh, documents related to perinatal mental health, and there are sort of new ones coming. Uh, and so those will be great, uh, very current resources. Uh, additionally, as I said, the Council on Patient Safety has a patient safety bundle um, that is now being revisited through AIM. In addition to the bundle of the what to implement, it'll also come, will come with some implementation guidance on how to do that and the things to think about. Additionally, you know, when that first patient safety bundle came out, it was really, you know, what we heard from uh, OBGYNs at the time is, well, we really love toolkits. We weren't really trained in this. We really would love some didactic sessions. We would really love a guide on how to implement this and, and you know, include it into the workflow in our offices. And the good news is, is that those things now exist. So there is a um, perinatal, perinatal mental health toolkit that is available through the ACOG website. It's also available on our Lifeline for Moms website. We have, we're just putting the finishing touches on an implementation guide and uh, about two hour uh, long uh, e-module broken up into the four parts of detection, assessment, treatment, and follow-up. And so that those resources will all be available through ACOG shortly. Additionally, um, I think if there's one thing you remember from this podcast is that these perinatal psychiatry access programs are available. They're available in many states. Uh, which states have them are, that is also available through the Lifeline for Moms website. And also there is a national hotline through Postpartum Support International. These perinatal psychiatry access program uh, hotlines are clinician facing, meaning they're meant to support the clinician in providing care to the patient. And also as of Mother's Day this past year, 2022 in May, um, there's a national perinatal mental health hotline, which is patient facing. Um, and that is a 24 seven hotline uh, that patients could be referred to as needed, especially if they're in crisis. Well, Dr. Morsimus, Dr. Byatt, thank you both so much for sharing your expertise and demystifying quite a bit about the world of perinatal mental health for us obstetricians. Um, this is certainly, as you all have stated, a super important topic, and I, I feel like I've definitely learned a lot today. You're welcome. It was a pleasure to be here today. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for your interest in the topic and for inviting us. Perfect. Well, again, folks, we'll have access to all of those perinatal mental health resources on our website, creagsovercoffee.com. But for today, once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creags Over Coffee. So guys, if you love the show, head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. 
You can find us on social media on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee. You can also donate to the show at our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. You can find show notes for this episode as well as all of our previous episodes as well as the Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. And if you have a question for us, if you have uh, recommendations for a new episode or a correction, go ahead and email us at creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. 